So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to the book of Exodus in chapter 6. Last week, we finished um, a, uh, what was maybe a year, a little bit more than a year-long uh, study through the book of Exodus. And what we'll do this morning is um, just sort of wrap up that study with sort of a survey, hoping to remind us of what it is that we have seen over the course of the year that we are in Exodus. And this will mark the official close of Exodus. This has been very, uh, very profitable study for me personally. So I, I hope that there is good benefit and encouragement to you, uh, causing you to think and to see more clearly um, who the Lord is, what he's like, what he has accomplished for his people. And in part, we want to remind ourselves of that here. One of the, one of the reasons that it, I thought it would be good to um, do maybe one more um, one more sermon in Exodus is because uh, there really is something to the expression, you know, you, you lose sight of the forest for the trees, right? You, you spend a lot of time in, in a book of the Bible over the course of a year or something like that, and you are taking a paragraph at a time or maybe a chapter here or there, and when you have a book as long as Exodus, 40 chapters or so, by the time you get to the end, if you were to ask someone what they've learned from Exodus, well, you know, I, I hope you'd be able to say a lot of good things. So you learned about the plagues or you learned about uh, how the Lord delivered his people from Egypt or uh, the law covenant or the purpose of the tabernacle and all those things. But there's always a risk that you get to the end and after looking at all these different components to Exodus that you get to the end and you say, okay, so what was Exodus actually about? Right, and you get this. Well, I don't actually know. I know a lot of stuff that was in Exodus, but in terms of how the book fits together or what the message of the book as a whole is, I'm, I'm really not sure. We spent so much time going over so much detail that I've lost sight of the overall message of the book. And so that's what we want to do here as we close out today. We want to remind ourselves of what it is that we've seen through Exodus, and hopefully, particularly for you Edgewood people, if you have been through the study with us, even if you don't remember this, you'll be able to look back, either in your own study um, in days to come, or perhaps looking back on some of the things that you've heard and say, yes, that's right, I do see and remember now how it is that all these pieces fit together and how they connect. So in Exodus chapter six, Read with me verses six through eight. There are probably other passages in Exodus that you could go to, to to lay this out, but in terms of just a simple, condensed, succinct passage, this has all of the major elements that come up in the book of Exodus, and so we'll take this passage as a way to remind ourselves of what it is that Exodus reveals to us. Exodus chapter six, verses six through eight. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, would you help us to see your glory revealed in your word, culminating in the revelation of your Son for the salvation of sinners. Remind us of the gift that is ours in the person of Jesus Christ and of the way that your spirit renews and transforms our hearts and minds so that not only would we be called the people of God, but that we would live as people of God. And Father, I also ask that according to the riches of your mercy, that if there is anyone here today who has not come to know the freedom that is offered in Jesus Christ, that you would stir and work on their hearts in such a way that either out of a longing to know you or over a conviction of deep-seated sin, that you would drive them to find the mercy and grace that you have given us in the death and resurrection of your son. We pray this in his name, amen. So Exodus 6, 6 through 8, if I were to take this passage and then from it perhaps try to sum it up in, in one sentence what these verses say and then in turn take what these verses say, 6 through 8, and apply that to Exodus as a whole, it would be something like this. We might say something like, the Lord saves his people so that they may know him and live with him forever. The Lord saves his people so that they may know him and live with him forever. This breaks down actually fairly, in a fairly orderly fashion, each verse sort of gets to a constituent phrase or component of that statement. So verse 6 says something about the Lord's salvation. Verse 7 says something about the Lord saving his people so that they would know him. And verse 8 saying something about the idea that they would live with him forever in the land that he was giving them. So start with me in verse 6. The Lord saves his people. If you, haven't, if you get to the end of Exodus and if you've lost sight of the fact that Exodus is trying to make clear, abundantly clear, that salvation is from the Lord and from the Lord only, you've missed Exodus completely. The Lord is the one who saves his people. Only the Lord is able to save. And notice one of the ways that that's highlighted, the, the fact that it's only the Lord who saves is even in the description that you have here in verse 6. Notice that the statement about what the Lord would do for his people provides sort of this characterization of what their life pre-salvation is like. Say to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. Under burdens that they could not free themselves from, and in chains that held them bound. They cannot get themselves out of their life of slavery. They are helpless. If they are to be delivered from a life of slavery, it must come from a salvation outside of them. They don't have the ability to free themselves. Only God can do that. But Exodus 6, or Exodus in general, 
while it gives a very clear, dramatic picture of the way that God enters into time and space to save his people in a dramatic way, as dramatic as what Exodus is, Exodus is only really a foreshadowing of a greater salvation that we read about in the New Testament. One of the reasons that we know that the, that the salvation in the New Testament is greater than the salvation in the Old Testament is because when you consider what the salvation will do for God's people in the Old Testament, the primary focus in Exodus, especially early on, is focusing on external factors. The problem that the Israelites have is something out there. It's the Egyptians. They have an enemy that they can't deal with. If that enemy is to be put down, God must do it. The New Testament comes along with Jesus and with his apostles, and they say the real danger, the real plight for God's people is far deeper and far more problematic than what they experienced in Exodus because the danger or the dilemma that we face in reality is not merely what is outside of us but what is inside of us. All right, listen, I don't, want to, I don't want to suggest that God does not bring relief and rest from oppression that is outside of us or from persecution or suffering or testing and trial that is external to us. He does do that. And one day he will do it once and for all when we enter into a perfect rest, never to be troubled again. But you need to understand, or at least you need to be reminded of the fact that whatever trouble we experience outside of ourselves, that is not our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem is that we have created, we have been born into slavery to sin, and no matter what the world outside does to us, the greatest dilemma that we have is our own human nature. So that Jesus says in John 8, 34, for example, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Do you hear that? Outside of the work of Christ, everyone born into this world is born into slavery. You are born into a slavery by your very nature. You are a slave to sin. And you can't even say, well, this is a sin that was sort of put upon me. right? Because you go elsewhere in the New Testament and you see that this trouble that we experience is, once again, both external and internal. So Paul will say in Ephesians 2, for example, that yes, before Christ and before his salvation, we walked according to the prince of the air, right? There was someone who ruled and owned us. But then he also says that the same spirit of disobedience that exists in the world is also what resided in us that we were by nature 
children of wrath, that we indulge the lust of our flesh and our mind. We do that. Sin and this entire world order exists at least in one sense or another to keep you from God. And even if you wanted to get to God, you couldn't. So what does God do in Exodus? He enters in, and we're told in verse 6, that through great judgments, he will redeem his people. That's what the plagues are. And the climactic judgment in Exodus is which act? The death of the son, the death of the firstborn son. Because you Egyptians will not let my people go, because Israel is my son, I will take your son so that I get my son free. But what happens if, according to the New Testament, the very people that God would make his sons are the problem? He has to require it of us, unless he gives another son in our place. And the Passover event in Exodus is giving us some sort of a model or some sort of an illustration, an analogy, a foreshadowing of what will come when the Son of God takes on a human nature and enters into this world so that He can offer Himself up in the place of undeserving sinners so that they can be made free. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is Christ, he also partook of flesh and blood, that through death, his death, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. If you're here and you don't know, you have not come to know the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, you need to hear me very clearly. You will never be able to find freedom on your own. You will never be able to break free from your sin. You will never be able to know the peace and the rest that only God can give unless you find it in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other side to that is you cannot know that kind of forgiveness and freedom and grace unless you know it through Jesus Christ. But the promise is, is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That kind of forgiveness, that kind of freedom and grace is yours for the asking. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Once you receive it, you cannot work your way in such that you can keep it. It is nothing but the sheer gift of the grace and mercy of God, and he gives it abundantly and freely. This room is populated with people 
who can say, like Old Testament Israel, I was a slave to sin. But because of the death of God's son, I'm free. It is the Lord who saves his people by the death of his son through an act of judgment at the cross. But it's the Lord who saves his people, verse 7, so that they may know him. Look at verse 7. After saying in verse 6 that he's going to deliver his people, that he's going to rescue them, that he will redeem them, with an outstretched arm through great judgments. He says in verse seven, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Hold your place here, flip just to a couple other passages in Exodus just to sort of reiterate this idea of the Lord taking, not just saving, delivering a people, but taking them to himself. Go to Exodus chapter 19 and look at verse four. The people have arrived at Sinai, they're about to meet with the Lord and this is the way that the Lord begins to prepare them for his arrival at Sinai. He says in 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. That's salvation. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Go to Exodus 29. Look at verses 45 and 46. Speaking of the tabernacle, the place that they are to make for God to live with his people, Exodus 29, 45 and 6, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Do you hear what's going on here? The Lord does not save his people merely so that they can know that they have been saved. He saves his people so that they can know the one who saved them. There's a world of difference between those two conditions. Simply knowing that God saved you, but knowing or knowing the one who saved you. The Lord's salvation is not catch and release, right? You, he, he snatches you out and then he just sort of turns you loose and says, now go make the best of your life. He saves his people so that they can know him. He's the reward. He's the gift. He's the goal. He's everything. And if in your salvation, if in your claim to be one of the people of God, you don't find that you are coming to know him more clearly, that you're not growing in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. Something is not right.
God saves his people out of bondage and slavery so that they can come to know him and enjoy him. That same thing is said in the New Testament. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just or the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you hear that? If you don't know Christ personally, you may not know him at all. You may not have been saved. We're told that when we are brought into union with Christ, that the same spirit that rested on Christ is given to us. He indwells us. So that Paul can say in Romans 8 that those who are being led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. Not the ones who merely profess that they're sons of God or children of God, the ones who give evidence of the fact that they are being led by His Spirit, who have His Spirit working within them. He goes on to say, we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. Every single person who receives the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ receives with it the infinite, eternal blessing of knowing the God who made you and who created you. Parents, moms, when little Junior comes to you and says that I've asked Jesus into my heart, good to be excited and good to affirm that, right? But kids, young kids, they're good at mimicking and repeating back the things that they've heard or the things that they've seen, yes? If they truly have come to know Christ as Savior, even for a child, there will be evidence that they have come to know Him. Look for fruit. Do they show signs, even at a childlike age and at a childlike level, do they show signs that they are not just merely professing a church line repeating what they've heard over and over again to make mom and dad happy, but do they give signs and evidence of the fact that there is something new at work in their heart? Do they give signs that God is at work in them, that they have come to know God, even if in a small way, in a real transformative way? That's what the law covenant was all about. 
Now that you have me, here's how you live with me. Here's how you enjoy me. Here's how you will live with one another. If you're here as a Christian, and if the, the claim or the statement that if you have been saved, you must then also know God. You must know your Savior personally. There must be some sort of internal work of the Spirit in your heart and mind because that goes with salvation. That is salvation. And you feel nervous or uncomfortable? Let me not apologize for that discomfort. Let me suggest that maybe that discomfort that you feel in your heart is itself a sign that God's Spirit resides within you and that His Spirit is convicting you of the fact that you are not living like a child, the child that you are, and He is calling you back into right fellowship with your Savior and with your King. Don't run from that conviction, Christian. It is God's gift to you. And if you are not yet a child of God, you ought not to run from any work of the Spirit that would bring you under the conviction of your weight of sin to find salvation in Jesus Christ. It is a gift to you so that you can know His mercy. So God saves His people so that they may know Him. And then last, verse 8, so that they may know Him and live with Him forever. Verse 8 says in Exodus 6, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let me just cut to the chase. All right, easy to see parallels with the promised land and the promise of heaven. Or, easy to see parallels between the promised land in the Old Testament and the promise of a new heaven and new earth. Right? Canaan is the place where they will enter into their rest. The Lord says, you have not yet entered into your resting place. Christian, this world as it exists right now is not our resting place. This is not the place where we will find satisfaction and contentment. This is not the place where we will find unrivaled joy and peace and perfection. We are not yet at our resting place. But remember, Edgewood, remember what happens in the golden calf episode when the people are fearful, when Moses is fearful that God will disown his people for their sin. And God actually holds out the offer to Moses and the people that I will get you into the land, but I won't remain with you. In other words, you can have heaven, but you'll have it without me. And what does Moses say? If your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. All of the promises of God 
all of the hopes and the dreams and the aspirations of heaven, all of the promises of a new heaven and earth to come, a new creation where righteousness will dwell, means nothing if God is not there. That's why in Revelation, drawing on Old Testament tabernacle language, we saw it last week, Revelation 21, the climax of the whole story of the Bible is to hear a voice say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. God dwells with his people once again. That is our ultimate hope. That is our joy. That is our reward. It's him. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we go out from here to hopefully enjoy a restful afternoon and evening celebrating our mothers, celebrating the gift of family and friends, would you help us to remember that all of this is fleeting and shallow apart from the salvation that you have given us in Christ for our sins. Would you draw your people, draw their gaze upward so that they would have their eyes fixed on the things that are above so that the things of this world become more and more trivial, look more and more cheap compared to the glories that are to be revealed to us. And Father, according to the riches of your grace and mercy, we ask that you would continue to bring in sinners and rebels into your good grace so that they can know the salvation that is to be found in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, who gives conviction, who makes your word effective. And we ask that you would continue to do that throughout today and through the rest of the week. Bring us back again next week, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.